Uh, I'm so thankful to be here with you all this morning. This is great. All these faces in here that I don't know, <laughs> which is really kind of fun. Um, I am the campus minister at Vanderbilt. Uh, I don't know if you know much about RUF, but RUF is uh, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America's uh, denominational campus ministry. Uh, I'm an ordained pastor and uh, sent to a campus, i.e. Vanderbilt, to bring the gospel to students, to outreach to students, and to, uh, to be with those children that grow up and, and go. And the blessing of, of a place like Vanderbilt, or as I always say, Vandy, um, did any of you all go to Vanderbilt? Any of you all? Okay. Any ties to Vanderbilt at all? Yeah? Oh, I saw a little one back there raise his hand. That's good. Glad you're here. We need some football players. So if you, um, we did beat TSU last night, which is good. Uh, but the beauty of RUF bringing the gospel to a student is that I love being on campus and being in the world and walking with them, to to really know them, to really be a part of their lives, that I'm not just up every week with 200, and we have about 200 plus students come every Wednesday night to our large group, just for me to just stand there and just inspire them, or to just kind of throw words at them and hope they go off and do well. My whole purpose, and my purpose in being here today with you, is to encourage you about who you are in Christ, is to bring you to Christ, to bring the Gospel to you, that you would leave here and be changed and transformed and different in the areas and spheres of influence that you have. And I think it's the hard part for me is that I'm walking with those students and I come here and I know I'm a stranger to you and you are to me, but I think this morning that we can rejoice in the fact that we share Christ. And I want you to feel connected with me and me with you because I'm here for you today. And you're here for me. And we go together before the throne. And that's the blessing that we share. So as we look at uh, this passage from Exodus 33, we're going to look at verses 7 through 23. And I may just read um, through 16, but we'll, we'll see. Y'all have just finished, I know, the Ten Commandments. And, we're, and just to give you a quick context, we're moving to... Uh, right past that, when Moses has come down from Sinai with the Ten Commandments, and uh, we'll talk about what, what's just happened. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the Tent of Meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent... All the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses as he, until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of, of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now we get a little close-up of their conversation. And this, the beauty of Hebrew writing is, is it takes the, 
the general, and then it narrows it down to the specifics. We actually get to hear what Moses and God are talking about. Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence, Moses, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I am your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct and I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. This summer I had the uh, opportunity, uh, um, a, a kind of a crazy opportunity for me. I got a phone call halfway middle of the night from a friend of mine, and I'm scared to death. Thinking, Are you okay? What's going on? Well, he's all excited, and I'm thinking, okay, what, what is he going to tell me? He says, Stacy, there's this game show coming through town, and I want us to try out for it. <laughs> And I'm thinking, a game show? Is this a joke? I mean, come on. And I'm, I'm really kind of like, okay, I just want to just chill out, watch TV and go to bed. I'm not really thinking about game shows right now. I'll let you know in the morning. So over the process of my sleep, I guess I thought, well, why not? I mean, it would be kind of a crazy experience. I've never had that kind of chance before. So I go with my friend, grab a couple of chairs, you know, some cooler with water and whatnot in it. We go and camp out downtown Nashville to try out for a game show called Show Me the Money. <laughs> and uh, it's by the people that did uh, Deal or No Deal, that, <clears throat> that show, if you know that show. Um, and I think what was so funny was it was an experience. I actually did get a call back, which I thought was like, wow. So they filmed me doing a mock game show, um, which was definitely an experience. But along the way, I got to see some really interesting folks. <laughs> and you can imagine all the kind of people that would probably line up for a game show. There, there were people with all sorts of stories, had t-shirts that show me, they made t-shirts that said, show me the money, to try and get picked on this show, because they're like, pick me, pick me, you know, they want to stand apart, they want to be set apart. And I found myself as I'm looking at them saying, well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this. You know, you're not going to get this. I'm going to get picked. You're not going to pick. You know, you, can, you start getting built into that. Does this, and I started thinking to myself, how can I set myself apart? What's going to set me apart from everyone else here so that I can say, they picked me. Pick, picked me. And isn't that the longing of our hearts? I mean, when we come here this morning and you worship, and, and you may come this morning, you may be exhausted from the week. You may be here and kind of even numb to worship this morning. But I want this morning to be a morning of awakening for you. That this week you will live out that feeling that you have of pick me, pick me, striving all week to be set apart, and yet you can turn back and rest and know where it comes from. Working at a campus like Vanderbilt, there are 
so many ways that people try and set themselves apart. Constantly. In every way. It could be academics. It can be athletics. It could be in their prowess, in whatever they... I mean, how many things they're involved in. How do you and I set ourselves apart or try to so that people will look at us and give us love and value and intimacy? Because that's what we want. That's what we're longing for. And C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully. He says, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. This morning, let's look at the real thing. You know, after you've studied the Ten Commandments, if you read the passage we just read there, there's kind of a a strange thing. There's kind of a rift in the relationship between God and Israel. Something's gone on between the Ten Commandments and this point. And if you even look at the Hebrew here, the Hebrew actually says, and it suggests that there's a shift or an antithesis from what went on before, that there's something wrong. And if you notice, even at the beginning, verse 7 and so on, it says outside the camp several times. There's something that you know, makes us want to ask, is this how things are really supposed to be? Is this how their relationship is really supposed to go? These were the people of God. They were the ones that He brought out of Egypt. That He rescued, that He brought to the foot of Sinai. That He was taking to the Promised Land. But what happened is, in this period of time, and if you flip back even look at chapter 32, you realize that something went on between this that really caused that rift, and that was the golden calf. You may be familiar with that story. Uh, if you aren't, essentially, they're down at the foot of the mountain, and they're waiting on Moses, and they see the cloud up there, and they know Moses is up there, but they're worried. And so in 32, it actually says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make gods, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So what they do is they take all their gold and they melt it and make a calf, a golden calf to worship. And so when Moses comes down, and sees that, and he throws, he actually throws the, the tablets of the commandments on the ground, and they shatter because of the great rift. And he cannot believe, and God actually told him to go down because of what was happening. What was happening in their relationship? There's a rift here. You can feel the distance, and you and I know that distance. We know that distance in our marriages, right? Sometimes when we have conflicts, or maybe a lot. We know that in our friendships. We know that even this morning maybe in our worship. We know that throughout the week in our devotion to the Lord. In our relationship with Him. It's a distance. It's an awkwardness. It's just kind of not fitting right. What is that? It's that there's a rift in our relationship with God. And what they've done is they've exchanged their relationship with God for their relationship with something else because they thought that it would bring them intimacy. What are are they wanting? 
make for us gods to go before us. They want to identify themselves with something. And because their fear of Moses leaving them, and because of their impatience and hard-heartedness, and as God even calls them, stiff-necked, they make a golden calf. I mean, it's kind of harsh it's being stiff-necked. But I mean, if, if, you, if you think about the term, what it really meant, and if you look it up, it really means that they were hard and stubborn people. They had a hard time trusting God. They could not believe and were not convinced and had to be convinced over and over again that He is with them. That He will go before them. That He will be in their midst. But this was enough. They just didn't get it. And there's all this talk in here about being favorable in God's sight. All this talk of being favorable and knowing by name in these passages. And the reason is, is because the whole issue of intimacy is a part of this. They are longing for intimacy, but they are so confused about where to go for it. And God constantly has to come back to their stiff-necked, hard hearts and soften them again. Because we are a stiff-necked people. We long, you and I have an innate longing to be set apart. We have since we were kids, right? I mean, you all know this. (laughs) You want your parents to look on you with favor. Even when you're older. You want people to look on you with favor and love. One of the greatest illustrations of this, to me, is from The Lord of the Rings. And I don't know if you've either seen the movie or read the book. They're both great. But there's two characters in the uh, second and third uh, books and actually movies called Faramir and Boromir. And these two characters are brothers. Uh, Faramir is one that continues on. Boromir actually dies. And you see Faramir's relationship with his father. And one of the things that is so sad and crushing is that Faramir so longs for the favor of his father. But his father loved Boromir a lot more. So much so that he said to his son that he wished Boromir was still alive and that Faramir wasn't. And and so much did Faramir want to gain the favor of his father, gain that longing and intimacy of his dad, of his daddy, that he charges to certain death with a group of other soldiers only to try and please his father. It's craziness. But that's us. We are built for intimacy. We are built to have our father look on us with favor. And yet what we do is try and set ourselves apart so that we can gain that in ways that will leave us wanting. That will leave us wanting. You know, the irony is that, that they have the tent, right, in the midst. And what they've done is replaced it with a golden calf. See, the real issue here was that they needed God's presence, right? They wanted presence and intimacy. And like I said, the beauty of this Hebrew writing is that it narrows down and we see the focus. And actually, in this conversation, we kind of get a glimpse of what's going on. Actually, because this golden calf incident, because of the sin in their life, in their midst, God's presence, His tent, 
where Moses used to meet, and it was actually in the center of the camp. But because they were such a stiff-necked people, they moved the tent far outside the camp. Because God could not dwell with them. So you can feel the tension as these people look far off as Moses walks into the tent from their tents. There's actually emotional connection there in the Hebrew. That they have these hearts of emotion and contrition and pain because they know what they've done. And they know that every time Moses takes off far outside the camp, that the reason he is walking so far away is because there is a big distance between God and them. And they feel it. You know, when Moses begins to speak here and he begins to plead to God for his mercy, what's so beautiful about that is for a lot of us, when we hear God say to uh, Moses and the people, Go on into the promised land. And he does. He actually, by his goodness and mercy, says, You can go on into the promised land, but you cannot go with me. And to, to me, as I thought about that passage, I thought, you know, I wonder if I would have settled for that. <laughs> if I would have said, Okay, God, I know I've done wrong, but you're going to let me go anyway? Great. Do we settle in our relationship with the Lord in that way? Do we live in shame before the Lord? I mean, also think of it this way. What if we were asked that question and we also went into the promised land and just lived with shame and guilt? And that's where a lot of us also live. We live with shame and guilt. (laughs) And we wonder why. Because we need to go before Him and plead for His mercy as Moses does. And not just mercy to have the promised land. What is beautiful here is that Moses says, if you do not bring us up, right? Then don't even, if you don't go with us, in verse 14, if my presence, um, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. He's appealing to God about not the promised land, not the Ten Commandments. He's appealing to God's mercy that he would have his presence go with them. That His presence is so important, so vital to their relationship because it's that closeness. How will they know who they are? Because that's what sets them apart. is who God is. And think about the logic here. What Moses is saying is, don't even take us to the promised land because the promised land is worthless if you are not there. Our worship this morning, if God's presence is not in here and with us, our worship is hollow and empty. He's saying, don't bring us up from here. You know what else he's even saying? What doesn't set them apart? The golden calf's an easy one, right? He's also saying, the Ten Commandments don't set you apart. The Ten Commandments, what you've studied for several weeks, and the morality that we try and muster up is not what sets us apart. Your goodness, your self-righteousness cannot set you apart. You can try and try. I'm a a recovering perfectionist. (laughs) And I know plenty of you probably wrestle with the same thing. And one of the things I'm constantly learning 
as God breaks me over and over again, is that it is not about how great and put together I am that sets me apart. It's that I'm a mess. It's that I don't have it all together. And the beauty of it is that the Ten Commandments themselves aren't what set us apart. It's God's presence that sets us apart. And because His presence is in our midst, that's when the Ten Commandments come alive. That's when the law actually makes sense. Because our relationship with God is so close and near. And I want to ask you, where do you set yourself apart? What is it that sets you apart? What is it that you think sets you apart? I mean, is it your work? Is it your job? Do you pour yourself so much into your job that you're willing to sacrifice other things, your family, your friends, and even yourself to try and gain status or who you are through your job or your work? Are you stubborn in relationships? Are you always having to be right in every way? Because if you find out that you're wrong, you won't be set apart anymore. Or maybe it's money and possessions. Maybe it's what you think you have that, that can set you apart. Or maybe it's even... even let's, let's bring it on home a little bit more. Uh, I'm for, I've been married for over seven years, and I was just talking to David earlier that one of the struggles that we've had since we've moved to Nashville is, is infertility. We've, we uh, lost our baby... Uh, this is my second year at Vanderbilt, and we lost our child um, right before we moved to, to Nashville um, two summers ago. And we have struggled with infertility for uh, three, four years now. And one of the things that, that God has really been chipping at my heart at is that if I had just have children, if I'm just able to have this family, that's what's going to set me apart. That's what's going to make my life what it needs to be. Is God any less loving, any less merciful, any less intimate with me because I don't have children? No. No, no, no. But I think it's true. And what He's doing here is He's trying to break your heart the same. Just because you have certain things does not set you apart. What you need and what sets you apart alone is God's presence in your life. And it's the same struggle I have with so many students that graduate from college and wonder, when am I ever going to have a husband? When am I ever going to have a wife? No one cares about me. Are you any less loved, any less important, any less valuable because of those things? No, not at all. And you and I must be broken of those places where we say that. Where we believe that if we do this, achieve this, have this, that we are set apart. What sets us apart is God. And you know what's so awesome about this story? What's so great, my, one of the reasons Exodus is such a, uh, one of my, it's probably my favorite Old Testament book, is because it's constantly pointing forward. It never ends here. It's always pointing down the road to who's coming. Emmanuel. God with us. 
It doesn't end here. It ends with Christ. It's pointing to John 1. The one who tabernacled or dwelt among us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The beauty of it is, is even more so than Israel, even more than His tent in the middle of our camp, God has come to you and I in His presence in Christ to dwell in your hearts. So close is He to you and I. So close is that intimacy of Him bringing us to Himself that He is closer to us than our next breath. And this is the One who tabernacles, who dwells in our midst and teaches us what we really, really want. Lewis says again, glory, as Christianity teaches me to hope for it, turns out to satisfy my original desire and indeed to reveal an element in that desire which I had not noticed. By ceasing for a moment to consider my own wants, I have begun to learn better what I really wanted. We cease to, to, to pursue and want those things that we think will change us for the one that really is our want, really is our desire, really does transform us, dwells in our midst, so much so that Paul even says this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, Since we have such a hope, we are, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what is being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're being transformed. It doesn't even stop here. We are still progressing. We're a part of this story. The great story of redemption. That you and I are longing for the hope of glory. Because that transformation, when He returns, will be so delightful that we will jump in His arms and know full hope, full glory, full intimacy, and what has set us apart all along. One of the, my favorite memories of my father is uh, we lived in this house in Dallas. And we li- I li- my room was on the second story, and as he would drive home, um, I would watch for the headlights. And the headlights would come somehow come through my window and dance across the ceiling, and I would try and figure out the patterns... <laughs> of when someone was actually pulling into our driveway. And so I would, you know, I'd see some lights and I'd hop up at the window and I'd look and it, it wasn't him and I'd, I'd have to like calm myself down and I'd lay in bed and, and I'd watch again and, and then finally one would come in and they'd stop. And I'd, look, I'd jump up at the window and there he was pulling up and getting out of his car. 
And I remember running down the stairs, flinging open the door and running outside my bare feet just to have Him hold me. That's what we're waiting for. And we can eagerly anticipate the day when Jesus returns because that's what our hearts long for. That's what we're looking for. That's where our gaze needs to be. And you know what? This intimacy, this Love for you and I, it is so. It is so. And He will come. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for encouraging my heart with this Word. This is Your Word. It's it's not mine. It's not any of ours in this room. It is Yours. And You are wanting us to know about how merciful You are about even though we're hard-hearted, we're stiff-necked, we, we are stubborn, and we pursue things that we think will set us apart, Lord, You draw us back in the Gospel. That we are as terrible and awful and broken and messed up as, as we think we are, but yet we are more loved and more cherished and more held close than we ever would have dreamed. Lord, that is the beauty of Your Gospel. And as we come and bring even our offerings to You, Lord, we're not just putting our money in these plates. We're putting our whole lives in there. Because when we put those things in there, we are wanting You to know, God, that all of us is Yours. Not just 10% of something. Every bit of us is Yours. And Lord, let us jump in Your arms. And anticipate the day when you will come back. And we long for that day. Lord, we pray these things in the name and through the blood of the intimate one, Jesus Christ. Amen.